Sky Watchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Jake, and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in August in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark, so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark, and remember not to look at your mobile phone or other bright devices when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch to the red night vision mode. Summer brings with it the Summer Triangle, which is an asterism made up of the stars Vega, Deneb and Alta. These are the brightest stars of the constellations Lyra, Cygnus and Aquila, respectively. Vega is the brightest star in the Summer Triangle, and it's younger than our solar system, and around twice the size of our Sun. Like the Sun, Vega is predominantly composed of hydrogen and is a main sequence star. That means it's fusing hydrogen at its core to form helium, releasing enormous amounts of energy. Vega is one of the brightest stars in the sky, and it's very near to our current North Star, Polaris. The North Star actually changes over the course of millennia, thanks to the Earth's precession, with this wobble altering where in the sky the Earth's axis of rotation is pointing towards. Several thousand years ago, Vega was the North Star, and it will be the North Star again in around 12,000 years' time. If you enjoy a cup of tea, why not treat yourself to a celestial cuppa? (laughs) Lying low above the southern horizon is the constellation of Sagittarius, home to a well-known asterism or pattern of stars called the teapot. Under good sky conditions, our home galaxy, the Milky Way, appears as steam, rising out of the spout of the teapot, with the centre of the galaxy lying to the upper right of the tip of the spout. There are some wonderful deep sky objects near the teapot. First up is NGC 6553, a gorgeous globular star cluster which lies to the west of the teapot's lid. For the next object, follow the Milky Way as it rises up from the teapot's spout and you'll find the open star cluster M25. Continue a bit further along the Milky Way and you'll spot M16, the famous Eagle Nebula. If you've got a telescope and a good view of the southern horizon, make sure to add these objects to your viewing list and use the dark skies around the beginning of the month to explore these cosmic tea time treats. Very nice. One of the most exciting events of the year is the annual Perseids meteor shower, peaking on the night of the 12th and before dawn on the 13th. The radiant for this cosmic show lies in the Perseus constellation, which for those of us in the UK is almost circumpolar, meaning it never fully sets. This year's peak, unfortunately, falls around the time of the full moon, so light conditions will be particularly bad. Dark and clear skies are always best for seeing meteors, but don't be discouraged from trying to spot some this month. Meteor showers typically occur when debris from larger asteroids or comets enters the Earth's atmosphere and begins to heat up due to friction created against air particles. The origin of the Perseids was discovered in 1862 by two astronomers, independently of each other, so it was named after them both as the Swift-Tuttle Comet. It's a relatively large comet, at around 26 kilometres across. It's thought to be around twice the size of the asteroid that may have killed the dinosaurs. Lucky for us, Swift-Tuttle is not in a collision course with the Earth, and it instead orbits the Sun once every 133 years. So it was last visible from Earth in 1992. The gas giant Saturn reaches opposition on the 14th of August. 
When a planet is in opposition, it means the Earth is directly between it and the Sun, making the planet appear bigger and brighter to us. This means that this is the best time to have a look at the second largest planet in our solar system. Saturn will be visible to the naked eye, but grab a telescope or even just a pair of binoculars to have a spectacular view of Saturn and its stunning ring system. Keep an eye out for the moons of Saturn and see if you can spot Titan, Saturn's largest moon. It is the only moon in the entire solar system that has an atmosphere, and the only other solar system body that has liquid on its surface. But don't expect to find liquid water on Titan. The temperature is far too cold for water to exist in a liquid state. What you will find are lakes of liquid methane and ethane. My favourite moon. <laughs> Would you like to look at the largest and brightest globular cluster in the sky? Yes. <laughs> Good. Well, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you're in luck, as you'll have the best views. Omega Centauri, located in the constellation Centaurus, is one of the few globular clusters that can be spotted by the unaided eye and resembles a small cloud in the southern sky. This ancient star cluster, which is estimated to be around 12 billion years old, contains nearly 10 million stars. The core of the cluster contains a whopping 100,000 stars alone. Studies of this globular cluster have revealed that it contains multiple stellar populations, meaning that its stars formed in different eras. This discovery has led some to suggest that Omega Centauri was once a dwarf galaxy that was captured by the Milky Way and has had its outer stars stripped away. This is definitely a globular cluster you'll want to have a look at, either with the naked eye or a steady hand and a good set of binoculars. And if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, go to rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. So, it's now time for the cosmic news, like news section of our podcast. Are you excited, Jake? I am excited, yes. Uh, what were the results of last week's poll? I'm excited to know. Well, as of course you weren't on the podcast last month, last month. Yeah. you weren't here, you were missed. It was me and Aman, and I am very happy to announce that I won. Very well done. Yes, thank you so much. Is that the first time you've won? It is the first time I've won. Thanks, that makes me one for two, I guess. Have I been on this twice? Anyway, yes, so last month we were talking about the Europa Clip mission and the discovery of UFOs, which they're now calling UAPs, mm. Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. And I have to have to be clear here, I, I think I won by a single vote. So it was a very close contest. Very close, yes. very good. But this month, we're going to try something different. That's right. So instead of having two stories, we've effectively got five stories rolled up into one. Because all the astronomy community has been talking about for the past few weeks has been these James Webb Space Telescope images that have come out. Five main images, and then there was also a leaked Jupiter image as well, uh, though we won't be going into that. But, yes, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, like you said, it's been in the news a lot, so we thought we should cover it as well. And we're doing one of my favourite things, which is discussing a visual medium in an audio format. I like it. It's good. It's going to be great. That's it. Get ready for this. We are going to paint a picture. Oh, am I? We'll paint five pictures, really. Five pictures. And four pictures and one graph. 
Should I be using more poetic language? I hadn't prepared for that part of it, but okay. Oh no, I have no poetic language ready. Yeah, it's going to be all very matter of fact. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought we could do a quick recap of James Webb in general. Well, I'm sure most people listening to this have heard of James Webb. Absolutely, but no, no, that sounds like a good idea. Enlighten us. Well, it's been around for a long time. It's been coming for a long time because it was in 1996 they first launched this as a as an idea, as a as a. That's a project. very long time ago. Right, that is some dedication, some real perseverance with these project managers and these astronomers and these engineers, um, and it finally launched on Christmas Day of last year, so 25th of December 2021. Mm, did you watch the launch? I did, yes. I'm trying to think back. I did watch the launch. Yeah, quite a Christmas morning treat for all of us, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. What a joy. Um, Yes, did you watch the launch as well? I did. I remember Christmas morning uh, watching the launch, equally excited and tense at the same time, uh, hoping it wouldn't explode on the launch pad. Uh, but there we go. Yeah, ruined decades of work. But it didn't explode on the launch pad. And then there was this very tense six-month period where it had to travel to its final point, which is about one and a half million kilometres away from us, and then incredibly carefully unfold. Um, That's right, yes. Um, the most sophisticated piece of origami ever devised. That's correct. I uh, was listening to one of the project engineers. I'm sure you can count this in different ways, but say there was 195 steps to do in sequence, and each step could have gone wrong. And then... And if it goes wrong, there's not really much they can do about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, we can't go and fix the James Webb Space Telescope. It's different to Hubble. Hubble is orbiting the Earth, so it's only about 500, 540 kilometres away. Mm -hmm. Whereas, yeah, James Webb, much, much further away. Yes, so... It's a one-way trip. That's it. It's how... I'm trying to remember how much it is. Over $50 billion probably has gone into it. And then if it's broken, it's broken. That's Mm -hmm. it. Can you imagine? We felt tense. Imagine how tense they felt. Oh my goodness. Um, But yes, it worked. Six months of unfolding and calibration, and then on the 12th of July, they released the first images. Exciting. Exciting. So people often talk about the James Webb Space Telescope as a replacement for Hubble, but it's not quite a replacement, is it? Because they're looking at, at different wavelengths of light, different types of light. Right. Hubble is looking mostly in the optical, visible light uh, wavelengths, whereas James Webb is entirely infrared. Entirely infrared. So it's a different type of light and it's making new discoveries. And yeah, on the 12th of July, which was, what, a week ago, it released these new images. At time of recording. At time of recording. Thank you for the reminder. Yes. (laughs) Hello, people in the future. So yes, instead of competing for a news story, we're going to talk about the five images, and then we will be asking you all to select a favourite image. So, so bear that in mind as you're listening to us. So, which image are we starting off with? Um, shall we start with the Carina Nebula? The Carina yes. Nebula. Okay, tell me about this image. Well, this is an image of a stellar nursery, a place where stars are formed, are created, which is why I think it should go first, because they have to be Very born good. before yeah. anything else happens, right? They Chronological. Mm-hmm. Very good. And yes, this is, if you have had a look at these images, it is, in my opinion, the most visually stunning of them. You've got this huge orange sort of cliff shape and a blue background behind it. Of course, that's not the, the true colours, because as we said, we're not looking at visible light. Uh, but this is a nebula, clouds of gas and dust where stars form. It's around 7,600 light years away from the Earth, so, so pretty distant. 
and it's in the southern hemisphere within a constellation called Carina, which is why it's called the Carina Nebula. Mm. You can't see it with your eyes, but if you're listening from the southern hemisphere and you want to look where James Webb has looked, you could find the location in the sky where this right. nebula is. But they're not likely to see a great deal. No. With, uh, with an amateur telescope. Not, not so much, no, but they can use their imaginations. Yeah. Absolutely. And yes, this is an image of stars in formation and of very young, very hot stars that have just formed. Um, and it's an exciting thing to be able to image because stars are only in this sort of part of their life for a very short amount of time, which means it's hard to, for us to capture. Right? Right. Stars spend a long time on the main sequence, billions of years in some cases, so we can find lots of examples. Whereas stars are only in this like dynamic, hot, unstable phase for what, 10,000 years or so, so it's, it's interesting to see it at this moment. And so James Webb is helping us learn more about how stars form um, right. through images like this. So it's very much capturing a brief, uh, a brief moment in time in these stellar nurseries. They're not here for a very long time. So to be able to capture one right in those moments where stars are forming is uh, quite an exciting thing. Yes, definitely. In fact, you see this sort of carved out shape that looks like a cliff. What's happening is once a star forms, it's very powerful, very hot, it's throwing out radiation. That radiation sort of clears away all the gas and dust around it. It blasts away some of the nebula. So you're seeing where a star has uh, cleared some space and you've just got the rest of the gas and dust in the what we see as the bottom of the image. I see. So over time, will the, the this dense uh, cloud, this cliff, will that begin to clear away more and more as more stars begin to sort of erupt into life? Yeah, yeah, I think so, because stars are forming within that cloud of gas and dust currently. James Webb can see those stars forming and the disks forming around them, so as they get brighter and hotter, they should clear away some of their own space as well. Mm. Um. Fantastic. And you said, so this is a false colour image, so this is not how it would appear to us at all with the naked eye. Um, and the different colours do have meanings to them, so they're going to represent different chemicals, different uh, elements that are present in there, so we can learn a lot about it just by... Well, the colours from the image can tell us a lot, even though they are false colours. That's true, yeah. I think different chemicals and also different temperatures. You're looking at different wavelengths within the infrared part of the spectrum. So you can see young hot stars, cooler bits of dust, all that going on. Well, it really is a beautiful image. I'd agree with you that I think it is the most visually stunning of the images. Uh, though, of course, they're all rather stunning in their own way. Um, best, I think, phone screen background. That's what I would... Best, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Best lock screen, definitely. Um, so that is, yes, a place where stars are formed, a stellar nursery. Um, it's a particular part of the Korean Nebula known as NGC 3324, if you want to be technical. But oh, very nice. nice. Catchy. Mm. But what's the next image? Which one would you like to highlight? The next image that we're going to look at is this stunning image of the Southern Ring Nebula. So we are going from where stars are born to the death of a medium mass star. So the Southern Ring Nebula, uh, more technically known as NGC 3132, okay. as part of the, the new general catalogue, very catchy, is a planetary nebula, which is effectively what will happen to a star of a similar mass to the Sun when it dies. This particular object in the image is about half a light year in diameter about 2,000 light years away. So again, we're talking about a fairly distant object, but still very much within our own galaxy. It is in the constellation of Vela, 
or Vila, which is in the Southern Hemisphere. So again, for any Northern Hemisphere listeners, you're not going to be able to view this one for yourselves. Really, you're going to require a trip down south if you'd like to see this one. That would be a great reason to go on holiday. Wouldn't it just? Or James Webb spots. Uh, but these planetary nebulas are effectively huge shells of dust and gas uh, that have been shed away from the outer layers of this star as it dies. And this is what happens to, yes, stars. Similar mass to the sun, so not massive ones or absolutely tiny ones. So our sun, in about five billion years, will eventually come to form one of these kinds of objects, mm -hmm. this planetary nebula. So huge shells of gas and dust shed outwards from the outer layers, illuminated by the leftover core, which is a white dwarf star. A white dwarf star is essentially the leftover core of a dead star of a mass similar to the sun. So these are incredibly dense objects, usually about the mass of the sun, but only about the same size as a small rocky planet like the Earth. So incredibly dense objects, very, very bright as well. No nuclear fusion going on at the core. It is just uh, all of the light and heat that it puts out is just residual thermal emissions. But they are bright enough to illuminate entire planetary nebulae, which is why these images are able to look so bright and uh, as beautiful as they do. They do, from I'd say from this distance, how far away is it again? It's about 2,000 light years away. From 2,000 light years away, it looks like a nice end for a star, you know? I'm sure for a planet orbiting that star, it might be less pleasant, but from here it does look stunning. Absolutely, and it's worth noting that these are actually two images that we have here. Uh, I'll just pass you this sheet of paper that Thank has you. the images on them so for a better view. Uh, we would encourage any listeners to be looking at the images while we're talking about them, if you can, mm. uh, if that is possible. Thank but we've got two for the price of one here. So the image that's probably getting the most circulation of the sort of bright blue central region and the deep orange outer layers, uh, this is taken in the near infrared. So this is closer to what our eyes uh, would be able to see it wouldn't be able you won't be able to see it with your eyes but this is closer to the wavelengths that we can see and then as well as that another released image with a sort of a deep crimson red central core and a sort of bluish greenish outer layer that is taken in mid infrared so these are much longer wavelengths than we would ever hope to see with our own eyes yeah the the image in, in mid-infrared of that filter doesn't look quite as, as impressive, but still has information within it, doesn't it? I know that if you look very closely at the centre of that image, you can actually see two points of light, and it's the smaller, redder point of light, which is the white dwarf, which is the centre of this star. That's right, yes. Yeah. So at the centre of this, uh, there's actually a binary star system. We've got the white dwarf, which is what actually formed the planetary nebula, but it is in a very tight orbit with another star uh, that is actually of a similar mass to the Sun, but in its main sequence. So it too, one day, will form a planetary nebula within this planetary nebula. What the mid-infrared image reveals is, yes, a much better look at this binary star system and also a look at that white dwarf in better detail it looks very red in this image and that's because it's actually shrouded in a cloak of dust which you cannot see in the near infrared image so this image in itself stands out from the other one because it reveals this cloak of dust over the top of the white dwarf that is uh, absorbing some of its light very cool 
Because yes, these aren't objects that are being discovered by James Webb, are they? We'd seen the Southern Ring Nebula before. It's just that James Webb can give us more detail. Absolutely. Objects that we haven't seen. By looking in different wavelengths of light, we are revealing structures and uh, little aspects of these objects that we just didn't know before. Super. Shall we move on to the next image? Absolutely, yes. What and is next? That's going to be me. And I am going to talk about Stefan's Quintet. Quintet. So, Stefan's Quintet. So what is Stefan's Quintet? So Stefan's Quintet is a famous group of galaxies. So once again, we knew about these galaxies before James Webb Space Telescope took this photo, but we get way more detail in this photo. And these galaxies are interesting because they are interacting. Well, a quintet references five. You can see five galaxies in the photo. Four of them are interacting. One of them is nowhere near the others. It just, from our perspective, looks close by. Mm. So if we are looking at the image, the galaxy on the far left is fairly close. It's about 40 million light years away. Uh, so, so fairly close. Fairly close. 40 million light years. <laughs> fairly close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For James Webb, you know, it's just so powerful. And then the other four galaxies are all closer together at about 290 million light years away. So they are vastly, vastly further away from uh, the one that's in the foreground. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a, a trick of perspective, something you've always got to be aware of. We have this forced, limited perspective and things could look close together, but are actually very far apart. Like the stars in the summer triangle, going back to our cosmic news. Absolutely. Those stars, nowhere near each other. Absolutely. Mm. So the four, so four of these galaxies are gravitationally connected to one another, bound, colliding with one another. They are indeed colliding and merging. Yes, because galaxies do merge. They have mass. They have gravity. They they attract each other. Um, if you again, there's a couple of different versions of this image seen with different parts of the spectrum. If you look at the one in the mid infrared, you can see these shock waves of heated, superheated gas as the galaxies start to collide. Um, it's an interesting thing to study because it helps us learn more about galactic evolution and we can also limit we can also link it to our own solar system because our own galaxy rather um, because the milky way is is going to collide with another galaxy that's right the andromeda galaxy our closest neighbor mm. in a little over four billion years or so i think yeah it sort of depends how you define collision because galaxies don't have a strict strict edge, do they align, which they have to cross before they're touching. Mm -hmm. But yeah, around four or five billion years from now, they're going to start becoming one, um, which will be stunning to watch if, if there's a civilization around on a planet in the Milky Way to watch this happen. You'd see the galaxy come closer and closer. Your, the view of your night sky would change. Absolutely. And eventually you'd get a whole new super galaxy to live inside mm -hmm. of. Uh, which importantly needs a new name if anyone out there would like to name this new galaxy this milky way and andromeda they'll collide together we need to call them something absolutely milk dromeda i think is the front runner at the moment yeah. but i hope it's not milk dromeda <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not a fan of that one in particular um so yes this image you can study galactic collisions you can also look at active galactic nuclei because one of these galaxies has a supermassive black hole at the center which is shining incredibly brightly it's active and they can see that through this image and with james webb there are spectrometers as well as cameras mm -hmm. so they can split the light up into its components and study those components and they can even see the gases swirling around the black hole they found argon and neon and they can even look at the velocities so they can map how fast these galaxies these gases are swirling around Fantastic. Yeah, super cool. 
Yes, active galactic nuclei are among some of the most interesting and also mysterious parts of galaxies. And Stefan's Quintet is such an interesting collection of objects. It can teach us so much about galactic evolution and how galaxies are formed or even just what happens when galaxies collide. Mm -hmm. uh, cannibalizing one another is quite a common thing amongst galaxies, as it turns out. It's believed the Milky Way cannibalized a smaller satellite galaxy not too far in the distant past. Stefan's Quintet is just, just another one of those amazing objects that can teach us so much more about our own galaxy. And like you say, the future that we are destined to have mm -hmm. in collision with Andromeda. It's coming, I think, currently at about 130 kilometers a second towards us. That's right, that sounds pretty <laughs> fast. <laughs> it's approaching. But yes, shall we move on to the, the deep field? Yes. Important for lots of reasons. So this is probably the image that got the most circulation in the press, I would say. Uh, Webb's first deep field, as it's become known, or I'm still not sure how one pronounces this, whether it's SMAX or SMAX 0723. I've been saying SMAX, but you're right, maybe we should be saying SMACS or... Who knows? But SMAX 0723 is Webb's first deep field image. Uh, it is the deepest and sharpest infrared image of the distant universe ever taken. And it is in the southern constellation of uh, Volans, or Volans, uh, one I don't know how to pronounce. I'm sure someone will be able to correct me. Um, yes, please let <laughs> us know. <laughs> but this is a composite image, so it is uh, multiple images stacked on top of one another in different wavelengths, taken with the NERCAM, which is the near-infrared camera that James Webb carries. And it's a 12 and a half hour exposure, this image, which is actually a remarkably short amount of time for an image this bright. Hubble's deep field images usually took two week long exposures. So they took in light for a much longer amount of time. This one, just 12 and a half hours. And what it's been able to pick up in 12 and a half hours of exposure time is rather incredible. In this image, if you've seen it, you'll see it's thousands upon thousands of galaxies, uh, some very apparent, some more uh, subtle in the background of the image. But the patch of sky that this image takes up is approximately the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. If you held up a grain of sand at arm's length up at the sky, that is the size of the patch of sky of this image. Wow, that's tiny. It's teeny tiny. And compared to the Hubble deep field, their first deep field was a grain of rice at arm's length, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe so. So a slightly larger uh, patch of sky. Mm, you thought a grain of rice was small. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's it. I wonder what will be the next teeny tiny object to make it seem even more yeah. incredible. How are we going to compare? Um, and how far away, you said it's distant, how far away are we talking? So it depends on which object in the image we talk about. It's got a main cluster in the center, which is the actual SMAX 0723 galaxy cluster. That is 4.6 billion light years away. Mm -hmm. So when that light left that galaxy cluster, it was pretty much the same time that the solar system was coming into creation. So very, very old indeed, and well, extremely far away. So we've got the main galaxy cluster in the middle, SMAX, 4.6 billion light years away. 
But some of the objects in the background are over 13 billion light years away, when the universe was less than a billion years old. So some of the most ancient objects ever captured in an image. And one of the very distinct features of this image uh, that seemed to really capture a lot of people's imagination uh, was the gravitational lensing that was going on. So this is the bending of light by the vast uh, mass of this galaxy cluster. It's able to bend light from behind it around it so that we're able to see it. So in fact, you can see in the image, there are plenty of galaxies that have been bent and distorted, or at least the light that we can see from them has been bent and distorted around the cluster at the very center. So there's some very fun, distorted galaxies there. All right, and those are the most distant things you can see in this image, the red stretched out galaxies. Yes, the redder and smaller they are, usually the uh, further away they are, because the red shift has absolutely stretched the light from them into this uh, deep red colour. And some of them there are, yes, over 13 billion years old. One of the uh, galaxies I do particularly like, actually, it looks as if it's four galaxies, but around the central bulge where there's a lot of lensing, there's four rather distinct red arcs coming around the centre of mass. And that is actually believed to be one galaxy that has been had its light stretched around both sides of the cluster. So we're actually seeing the image of it four times. Mm, so it's like an optical illusion. Absolutely, yes. In the same way that black holes can uh, do gravitational lensing, you can bend the light around. So you can see the same object twice, uh, or four times even, once as it bends around the top, once as it bends around the bottom, and then bending around the sides as well. So you see the same object four times over in the same image. It's fantastic. Um, one thing we haven't spoken about are the lines coming off some points of light. I know we've covered this in a previous podcast, but did you want to quickly explain yes. those ones? Yes. So the objects that you can see with six bright uh, spikes coming off of them. So those are actually stars within our own galaxy. So these are not part of the galaxy cluster. They're not these uh, ancient and distant galaxies. They're actually local stars. Uh, but of course, as with uh, looking out deep into space, you're inevitably going to capture a few closer objects. So those are stars within the Milky Way. The reason for the spikes is due to the shape of the mirror of James Webb. So it's made up of quite a few hexagonal shaped mirrors and as the light hits the mirror basically uh, some of that light gets bent around some of these parts of the mirror so you get diffraction spikes you get six spikes coming off of them the Hubble Space Telescope famously gave four diffraction spikes so that's what we were used to seeing but now it's six mm -hmm. so if you see a very bright object with six spikes coming off of it in one of these images they're going to be local stars okay that's a, a fun party trick I think is if somebody holds up two images, you'll be able to tell which one is Hubble and which one is James Webb because of the, the diffraction lines are different, diffraction spikes are different in both. That's right, fun, exactly. Fun for me, I guess. Yes. That's my party trick. Fun for astronomers. Yeah. Four versus six. Uh, there are a few, there's in fact two smaller spikes as well, so there's technically eight distinct spikes in this image. Those come from a different effect, that's because of the struts that are holding up the secondary mirror of the telescope. So that is just light bending around these support struts holding up the secondary mirror. But yeah, like you say, fun party trick for astronomers. Uh, <laughs> Guess who took this image? You'll know instantly. Exactly. Mm -hmm.
But that is the SMAX 0723 image, probably the one that's getting the most attention, and it's clear to see why it's containing the oldest objects ever seen, some perhaps that are uh, just, well, we're seeing them as they were just 300 million years after the Big Bang. Well, you say it's getting the most attention, and you can see why, but I actually think the last image we're going to talk about should have the most attention and is the most exciting. Interesting. Yeah. And that would be our spectrum of the atmosphere of a gas giant. Right. So this image is not an image at all. It's a graph. That's true. Why should we care about this graph? And what is it actually telling us? I will tell you why you should care about this graph. Um, so you're right. It's not, a, it's not a pretty picture. It's not the best lock screen. But <laughs> <laughs> That's how we judge them now. Not the best lock screen. But yes, it is fascinating. So this is a spectrum from an exoplanet. The exoplanet is called WASP-96b. Catchy name again. Yeah, yeah. WASP named after the wide angle search for planets. I actually didn't know that that's why, mm. that it was an acronym. So it was a, it's a project involving two telescopes searching for exoplanets. So again, James Webb didn't discover the planet. We knew about the planet as well. It was discovered in 2013. And it was discovered through the transit method. Right, so you're going to have to describe the transit course, method. Yeah. So there are planets orbiting other stars in our galaxy, and in all the other galaxies as well, but we can't see those yet. Um, and as a planet goes around a star, if it crosses in between the star and us, it will block a little bit of light getting to the Earth. And so if you're monitoring the brightness of that star, there'll be a little dip in brightness as the exoplanet crosses in front during its orbit. So we can find that dip in brightness and we can tell there's an exoplanet there. So these planets are too far away and too small for us to image directly. We haven't got photos of them. You can see something in the background of this image. That's an artist's impression. That's not a real photo of the exoplanet. Right, yes. But still very... Now that would be exciting. Right, maybe. Not that the graph isn't exciting. Thank you. <laughs> but these dips in brightness, it can be incredibly small dips in brightness, just a few parts in a million. So incredible that you can detect just the tiniest dim and if you well if you capture it happening a few times over you can be pretty sure that there's an exoplanet yeah. there and that's what wasp 96b certainly is yes and it is an exoplanet it's a type of exoplanet called a hot jupiter which means it's similar in composition to jupiter it's a gas giant but it's hotter than jupiter because it's way way closer to its parent star I see. Hot so, Jupiter is a very appropriate name then. <laughs> a bit like Jupiter, quite hot. Let's call yeah. it a hot Jupiter. <laughs> Again, astronomers aren't great at, at naming objects. Um, but this isn't just about the transit method. This is about another bit of science on top of that. Because the planet blocks light from the star getting to Earth, but some light from the star can filter through the atmosphere of the planet and reach us here on Earth. Right. Okay. And if you then look at that light in great detail, you can break it up into different wavelengths. You can study that light, and from that, you can learn about the atmosphere of the exoplanet. So that's what this spectrum is. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. So what is in the atmosphere of WASP-96b? There is water in the atmosphere of WASP-96b. They can see that from this spectrum. It's even labelled, if you have a look at it for yourself. So those peaks are um, consistent with, with us, with what you see if there was water. So we think there is water. Now it's a very hot Jupiter. The atmosphere, I think, is about a thousand degrees Celsius, as it's so close to the parent star. It's in fact one ninth of the distance between the Sun and Mercury. So close. Incredibly enough. close. Yeah, it orbits the star once every three and a half days, roughly. 
So this isn't liquid water, it's going to be gaseous in this state because it's so incredibly hot, but it's there. And the, from the spectrum, they can also tell that there's probably clouds in the atmosphere and there's a kind of haze as well. So that's right. incredible. And this is just from one transit. The transit took about one and a half hours. So the planet was crossing between us and the parent star for one and a half hours. The total exposure time was about six and a half hours. So this is a really, really small window to get this much data. And obviously we have now the lifetime of James Webb to get more data from this planet and other exoplanets. Right, wow. So all of this data in the graph was captured in just over six hours. Yep, six hours and 23 minutes. That's incredible. And so we're not talking about oceans or lakes of water on this planet. No, it's going to be, it's going to be in the air. Um, like there's water in the air around us right now, but way hotter air. Yeah, absolutely. So the thing that everyone would want to know is if you hear water on an exoplanet, in no matter what form it takes, people want to know, could there be life on or in WASP-96b? I like that you've cycled around to aliens. Um, with our current understanding of what life needs, it's not looking like a viable place for life. Um, but I would never say never. I would say that James Webb will also be looking at other types of exoplanets because we know of rocky exoplanets within the habitable zones of their stars. So we might find a planet with liquid water on the surface. Right. So we may still find the aliens yet. We may still find the aliens. One thing to note is WASP-96b is about a thousand light years away. And I did the maths myself. And if you travelled there at the top speed of the Voyager spacecraft, you would reach it in 20 million years. Oh, right. So we're not going to get there. <laughs> That's not a holiday destination. <laughs> We have to rely on, on data from telescopes like this, but this is a very promising, promising graph because it's suggesting that we will get loads of data like yes. this. I read that about um, a quarter of this year's observation time is dedicated to exoplanets. That's exciting. Yeah. So James Webb has lots of different contributors and lots of different scientists, and they sort of apply for, for time. Right, there's a, there's yes. A panel and they judge. Everybody wants to go. Yeah, everyone wants to go. And of all the projects that have got to go, about a quarter of that time is going to be exoplanets this year. Interesting. So hopefully more, more to come. There we go. I mean, it's interesting just with these four images and also the graph, just to see how diverse and varied uh, the images that James Webb can take are. We're seeing where stars are born, where stars die. We're seeing galaxies, clusters of galaxies, billions of light years away and also the atmospheres of exoplanets. It really is, uh, well, it's quite a workhorse. Mm. And yeah, and a jack of all trades. Just the first six. Is it six? Just the first five. The first half a dozen. The, the first of them, yeah, as a sort of example, these press release images. So it's only going to get better from here. Well, very exciting. Mm -hmm. So yes, that's all we've got for you today. But like we said, our poll this month is going to be of these different images and this graph. And so you can go to Twitter at ROG Astronomers and vote for your favourite image. Absolutely. It'd be really interesting to know actually what people think, because I'm not quite sure uh, what people are the most excited about. Uh, I mean, I personally have been seeing so much coverage of the deep field image and also that stunning image of the Carina Nebula. But it'd be interesting to see what people think. Maybe they're more interested in exoplanet atmospheres, 
Maybe planetary nebulae. Stefan's quintet is a gorgeous object. Maybe that's what the people like. Maybe. Well, we'll find out in next month's podcast. Do let us know what you think. So, all that's really left to say is thank you for listening and uh, keep looking up. Mm-hmm.